Hello everyone, I am pumped to be back on this week on The Real Stuff Podcast, and I'm sitting down with one of our legendary stuff investors, Stu Gregor. By way of background, Stu is co-founder, trade director, and chief ambassador of Four Pillars Gin. Four Pillars has quickly become one of the distilling world's recent success stories, becoming Australia's number one craft spirit. They've collected the industry's ultimate accolade, the International Gin Producer of the Year, twice. How good is that? Best gin in the world, twice. Not only that, this Australian success story has recently been acquired by industry giant Lion. We cover some serious territory in this episode, including the special ingredients to Four Pillars' success, the power of women in leadership, and in particular, the power of women in Australian sport right now, and how he has navigated fatherhood whilst balancing his high-performing professional commitments, including the recent buyout of Four Pillars. Stu is down to earth, he's very funny, he's humble, he's full of wisdom and wisecracks, but most of all, he's just a great human being. I hope you enjoy the episode. Let's do it. Well, uh, Stu Gregor, uh, long time coming. Um, first time podcaster, although you've just told me you have a cracking voice and you want to start your own. I definitely should have my own podcast, I think. I've face, what do they say? Face for radio. Face, face for radio. radio. These days it's face for podcasting. I think this is my future. And I like this studio too. I'm not going to lie. This is luxe. I think they've done something to your microphone. You sound extra husky and it's great. Um, Stu, thank you so much. I know it's obviously been a lot of change and news in your life recently, but you've also um, weathered some storms and seen some uh, seen some things in your success, which we're going to go into. But I should just want to start with you as a human being. Um, <laughs> what was Little Stu like? <laughs> um, little Stu, if I'm if I'm talking Little Stu, sort of under 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 the you know up until the teenage years, I suppose was almost stereotypical young Australian boy obsessed with sport, not particularly good at school. My mother always tells this story that I had to leave. The reason I went to, I ended up going to sort of a, what, what you would call as an elite, you know, like a private school is because I was asked to leave the public school. I was a rowdy kid. Was, she, she, she tells this story, my mother, about the, the headmaster at Kalani Heights Public School when I'm in year four saying, Mrs. Gregor, let's just give him one more chance. <laughs> let's see if he can behave. I was just naughty. I talked a lot. I was much more interested in playing footy or soccer or cricket or tennis or anything else, any sport I could. Um, and I, I suppose I always had, um, <clears throat> I don't even know what you think about when you're, when you're a kid. I mean, I, I often look, I have a 17-year-old son now, so I often look at him through my eyes and, yeah. and, and I just think he's a more impressive more together, better, or not better organized. And there's no such thing as a well-organized 17 year old boy. I mean, he's a disgrace. Um, but I think I just sort of ambled my way through high school. And I think I just sort of, I did enough to get a decent score. I was never a really particularly high achieving academic kid. I just, I was obsessed with the media. I just always loved the media. And to, to this day, I just love reading anything and listening to stuff. I'm not a podcast listener, but I'd rather read a thousand newspapers online or, or actual old fashioned newspapers. And, um, yeah, I think as a young kid, I thought the dream would be, I realized when I played a bit of sport that I probably wasn't going to be a wallaby and I probably wasn't going to be in the Australian test team. 
So if I could write about it or talk about it or get involved in it in some way, you know, sport was always the thing that was my sort of light, my shining thing that took me right through um, as a as a kid. And, you know, I went okay at school and bumbled my way into a into a cadetship, right? So I, I left school having been to a you know, fancy private school here in Sydney, and I think the expectation was you would go and do a degree at university. Yeah. And I remember saying to my parents, I'd rather go and be a copy boy, which is the lowest level of the old newsroom, basically taking pieces of paper and buying coffees for journos, you know, old, hard-drinking, smoking, yeah. you know, smoking in the office, <laughs> ashtray right there. We had just got what were called VDUs, which were like typewriters but with a computer terminal right so we're talking the late 80s here and um yeah, i just thought it would be so cool to be in the in in the media and in the newsroom and all that sort of stuff so i don't know i i was not a particularly uh, or an especially brilliant child and i was not particularly ambitious in any particular field i was just sort of ambled my way through like most of us did made all the same mistakes that most of us did and girls in sport Pretty yeah. much uncomplicated. <laughs> <laughs> I look at my son and I think, oh, girls in sport. Yeah, <laughs> that's on brand. Where, I don't know where he got that from. <laughs> was there? A, it's funny just hearing that. Uh, similar to, I was on a daily report card at school, so after every lesson, I had to take up the report card, and they had to say if I got a certain grade, I would be asked to. You leave. could come back tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, literally that. In particularly year eight. That's intense. And it was never like really naughty, but it was entertainment orientated. So it, it was like let's. It, see what happens so that's exactly the same right it was i just wanted i always like to make people laugh i was you know and it wasn't even necessarily about me it was about just entertaining yeah. people yeah. so you know you and i yeah and i think that year eight and year nine and when you really start to push things you yes. know you discover girls and bad behavior and occasionally drugs and a few other things and yeah year nine is always that is a is a wobble year. Absolutely, I, I describe it. I've heard someone say like, "I love school." It's just a shame classes got in the way. That was <laughs> that kind of really summarizes my experience at school. And same thing, just lived for the lunchtime breaks to just you know get out there and tackle my mates and just oh. and then I'd come back just a sweaty mess, sweaty mess. geography or something. <laughs> um, one of the things that clicked for me, um, I remember studying for my year 12 exams and I was just cruising and I remember I got shown my trial mark and I was like, oh fuck, this is mm. bad. <laughs> like, this is like 13 years that's about to go down the drain here. Yeah. And I was like, I better pull my finger out here. And that was one of the first time, and I kind of pulled something, I did fortunately pull something out of my ass. It wasn't, you know, groundbreaking, but it was definitely better of where it was. But in that moment or the, the months where I actually had to knuckle down, I actually discovered I enjoy learning, which mm. I hadn't really, that hadn't really clicked before. Did you have an experience like that for you where things clicked and you go, oh, I can actually do some things here? I think I, um, yeah, I mean, I can't remember, you know, I'm much older than you and obviously I've drunk too much gin over the years, so I can't, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to recall a specific moment. But I do remember the same idea in year 11 and year 12 because I went to a very competitive academic school. And I always thought, because I, I never lacked a self-confidence, so I always thought I was brainy enough. But there was always a group of complete brainiacs. Yeah. And I knew, okay, so they're out of reach, right? They're, they're, yeah. That's the high court judges and the, and the <laughs> anaesthetists, and the, right? I'm, I'm not going to go near them. But I think I can be the, the top of the peloton, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like I, can be the, I can sort of lead the pack that's behind the, the guys who are actually going to win. And um, 
And I did. I, I remember having a. I remember actually having an econo- economics teacher, a guy called Peter Switzer, who ended up on the media and all that sort of stuff. And he really pushed me to try a bit harder because I was. I, I quite liked economics and commerce and that sort of stuff. So he pushed me. And then I think if you get a couple of good teachers, like I'm watching my son now, who's in year eleven, who has a who who's he's dreadful at maths. Like mm-hmm. my my family have zero mathematical ability, and he's dropped down to the general g- maths. General maths, which I, we used to call, I know it well. <laughs> we used to call veggie maths, right? I mean, you're not allowed anymore, obviously. <laughs> and and he's loving it because he's got this great teacher from Manchester, and he's bonded with her because they're like he's a Manchester United fan, yeah. and so is she. And her name is Pam. And I met her the other day, and she's hilarious and great. And she had them out in the class. So this is a school where the norm is to do four unit maths, like maths extension, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. It's you know Sydney Grammar School, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. it's yeah. elite. Yeah. And he's doing general maths, so they are the laughing stock of the school, right? And apparently this week they were out in the playground measuring. <laughs> <laughs> measuring 50, what does 50 meters look like you know and with giant elastics and everything else and him and his mate according to his math teacher start doing skipping like <laughs> eight-year-old girls right doing big, and i'm like wow we're paying for an elite education here so my son can skip and the thing that i thought most likely to happen was that he would trip over the skipping rope break his wrist yeah and then not be able to play rugby, and that would be that would be the terminal, the terminal disaster. But I think, look, I I, I agreed. I, I I think if I was to say, I don't know if it's a love of learning, but it's an inquisitiveness, right? And I, I and I can see it with both my son mm. and my daughter. But you know, it's this idea of wanting to know what makes stuff yeah. happen. Why, why yeah. is that happening? And I think that's why I wanted to be a, a journalist. And I do think you know, a love of learning is something that you can't. You can't fake, yeah. You know, because you do so much of it in your own time and in totally. your own head. Yeah, like no one's watching you study the, I don't know, the, the, the American political cycle, which I do get a bit obsessed about each time there's an election. Like right, you know, even now, a year and a half out. Um, but no one else is watching, so you're only doing it for yourself. And I think sometimes, from a, you know, from our from the point of view of us as you know, young young men, <laughs> slightly older men, that sort of stuff, it's really good to do stuff that's just for yourself, mm. right? And, and it can be learning, or it can be fitness, or it can be walking, or it can be, you know, I, I I think it's important to make sure that we do things. I was actually having this conversation with myself only only yesterday because I'm I'm out of a job in four weeks. <laughs> yes, and why is that, Stu? <laughs> well, four it, four pillars. It's a, it, it's interesting. Four pillars has sold out to Lion, which is a large, um, so Four Pillars Gin, which is the business that I co-founded 10 years ago, um, has had a pretty good run and we sold to Lion, big, you know, drinks business owned by Kieran. So they own, you know, Forex and all the, all, lots of great beer brands and Tui's and um, Stone and Wood. And we sold out and, and my commitment was that I would stay from July the 1st through to August 31, just to sort of manage a very short yeah. transition. Um, and it occurred to me that like, um, I, I always do, I almost inevitably do what other people have asked me to do mm. all the time, right? Even as a leader, you're always thinking about, oh, I better do that. I better do that. And I, I over, like my wife would tell you that I'm the greatest over committer of all time. I just say yes to so many things. And she's been trying to tell me to start saying no to stuff, like just take six months off. So the idea is that I work another four weeks and then I take six months off. 
and I feel myself, I'm already over committing during what is meant to be a sabbatical and I didn't even know what a sabbatical, a break, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now, and all I'm looking at, and all I'm doing is trying to fill my break. I'm like, well, what am I going to do that week? Oh, I'll, I'll um, I'll go to Singapore and eat lots of amazing food with my Crap. daughter. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I might go golf. You know, so, um, I'm trying to fill that downtime. But I think uh, what the one thing I'm going to try to do, I think, is more things for for me, like do the things that I want to do rather than because there's a commitment that I've been asked to do. But I also want to take my daughter to Singapore just so we can hang together and spend some time together. And um, I've got this, not not anxiety, but I've got this real competing forces at play right now. Do I do the thing that someone else wants me to do or do I do the thing that I actually want to do for myself? Yeah. And I'm going to send the email today, Hunter. I'm going to send it. I'm going to, I'm going to do my own thing. And then I'm going to be racked with guilt because I've let this person down because they want me to host an event for them. I'm like, I've hosted enough events. Yeah. I'd like to hang hang out with my daughter for a couple of days and those times don't have those times really have to be organized like yeah if 17 year old boys are complicated 19 year old girls have a full have a full book and if you if if dad doesn't like actually lock in a time and you probably need to go away you can't have the distractions of other humans because yeah. as soon as there's other humans in yeah. Off she goes. So, <laughs> so I need to take her away, like literally. To connect. Yeah, bail her into a plane and say, right, we've got four days here and no one else is going to be around. So good. Hey, everyone. Just sneaking in here with a quick update to let you know about a unique opportunity we've got going live until the 31st of August, 2023. And that's that Stuff is running a crowdfunding campaign for the Australian public to become a shareholder in our business. So for as little as $250 or as much as you would like, you could be an owner of Stuff alongside me. We're now Australia's fastest growing men's grooming brand in grocery and pharmacy. We also support Man Cave to deliver life-changing mental health programs in schools across the country. And this opportunity is only live until the 31st of August, 2023. I would love to have you involved if it aligns with your values. We'll put the link in the show notes. I hope you can join us on the journey. All right, back to the episode. How, if we'll go down that thread, raising a teenage boy and a teenage girl, Mm. two different experiences. Yes. Yeah. What have you learned from raising both of them? Um, (laughs) You, you... It's, it's, you can't just have a formula. So, so sometimes I see parents who are, who, who appear to parent by numbers and they've got a sort of a formula of how to do things and we do this and we do, it's, you, you can't, but not just, not, and I don't think it's just the, it's, it's just gender based. I think it's human based. Like my son and my daughter are very different young people, people, yeah, right. Who have different demands, who have different issues, you know, one is very confident and one lacks a bit of confidence. One is a sort of a people pleaser and the other one is a real leader. And you've got to be able to, and I don't think I was particularly, and then and then I'm busy with my life and so I don't understand why that's not just a simple, like just do this fucking thing, yeah. right? And they're very, they're, they're different. And it takes a while through their teenage years for you to learn the flexibility and that mm. you need to not just also compare one to the other. But this is what Audrey would have done. But George did this. Like, why? Why are they different? Why aren't they just doing the same thing? Um, and it's a real test. I mean, you know, parenthood. Is, you know, we could you could talk about that for hours. But it's a real test of your ability to um, 
to compromise. <laughs> like, it's the greatest test of your ability to compromise that, yeah. that has ever been put on this earth <laughs> because you you have to be you, you have to always put someone else ahead of you. Otherwise, I think you fracture. I think sometimes parents forget how much these children rely on you and how much they look up to you and how important you are in their lives, right? Everyone knows of the, you know, the, I mean, there's pro- there aren't many greater tragedies than the tragedy of a, of, of a parent and a child yeah. falling out, the, yeah. the, the, the split, the, the hatred, the, right, right? There's nothing more tragic than that. I mean, even, you know, even in, even in literature, you know, that that's, and Nothing would make me sadder than if that were to happen. Like mm. nothing. I could lose all my money and business and whatever else. But I mean, were I to lose the relationship with my children over something that potentially I had done or... Yeah. It's normally the parent yeah. who fucks up, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> um, that would be the... That would be without question the, the, the greatest tragedy of my life. And so what you have to do is sort of work work around it all the time, work yeah. at it all the time. Yeah. Because I think, um, I was always fascinated by people, I don't know, I'm, I'm going on a bit of a rave here now, but I was always fascinated by people, a lot of a lot of my uh, sort of cohort roll their eyes when they talk about their teenage children. Oh, God, yeah. you know, they don't talk, they're in their room the whole time, they're, they're rude, they're probably on drugs, they're, you know, they, I, I have no, I have nothing in common with them, we can't talk, you know, all that yeah. sort of typical... Yeah parenting from a sort of a 14-year-old to a 20-year-old. And I, I don't, I'm not especially, I'm, I'm not special, I'm not special, full stop. But I just don't have that. Like, I fucking love my children to bits. And they're both different and frustrating mm. and annoying and all that sort of stuff. But they're incredible. Yeah. Like, they're, they're and they're more... They're, they're they're better than the sum of the of 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 the parts of me and Sal, you know, who's my my <laughs> wife. Like they really are. Yeah. And I I want to be with them. I know I'm going to eventually be like a real fucking pain in the ass for them. Stage five, clean <laughs> up. <laughs> just let go. I'm like, oh, can't we just go? Away? So, Singapore. Stage five, clinger. Yeah, that's you know, I'm I'm stage four <laughs> with a with a bullet at the moment, but um. <laughs> and I think, I think, uh, here's a, here's a parenting tip. Be, be as successful as you possibly can be because the one thing that'll keep your kids coming back is my daughter just went on the shittiest tour of Europe, right, with her <laughs> friends in the worst hostels, you know, flying the, the cheapest. I, I was like, you're going, you're paying, and you're going like China Air through Taipei with an 18-hour <laughs> layover and there's nothing but... Um, Hostels, like, you've got your 20 bucks a day, you know, you know that yeah. sort of stuff, right? Yeah. And she went and just came came back. And I said, I'll pay two nights accommodation on this trip. Yeah. Right? Um, and it, it ended up being in Amsterdam. <laughs> hmm, funny <laughs> that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> funny story. I don't know. It was a funny story, but the wife was, it was this, this was just literally last Monday. And I, um, I was saying, has she found the hotel room yet? Can you see? Because, you know, she's got the credit card and everything else because I was worried that they're in Amsterdam and there's yeah. three girls and all, you know. She goes, well, I don't know if they've found the hotel, but they've found the cannabis store. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. They may never find a hotel, but they found the hotel. Um, and she came back and I think went, oh, I never want to stay in a youth hostel again. Like 10 people in yeah. the room. Snoring. And young guys vomiting yeah. and like just creepy people and... 
and I think that it's gone, that, that, that little light bulb moment's gone off in the head saying, oh, traveling with mum and dad is awesome. I don't <laughs> think I realized how good a hotel was. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, and my son's a bit the same. He, he, he gets it. But um, yeah, it's a, it's the great, it's a great challenge. I love it. And constant, right? And constant for uh, some of like my, I'm 32. So my friendship group You're is- You're a babe. They're about to start having, they're having it's babies all now. happening. And yep. I'm watching the initiation and- yep. Uh, it, which is also just an extraordinary experience to just go, okay, that's not me yet. Yep. Let me peer over the fence and go, wow, okay, I need to get to make the most of over here before that happens. And also, you know, the most brilliant, beautiful thing watching my close friends just move through this like experience. I'm like, wow, you have softened. And oh, yeah. like, yeah. it's just a magnificent thing to witness and just watching the care. And I'm like, like I'm, you know, f- f- most of them held a rugby ball most of their lives, and then the child started there, and suddenly it shifted into the hip. And like I'm being really serious watching that. And um, one of the things that they keep coming back to me and saying is, it is relentlessly constant. Like you have no idea until you are initiated into this world. And then the balance. And I'm actually interested about this. And it feels kind of funny to talk about gender roles in 2023. But just to one of the things I'm curious just about your lived experience of is one of the things that we talk about is um, a group of mates get together. And it's like, well, can like the, so much support and nurturing and the child is with the mother and the father is also going on their own unique experience through that time. And often... Yep. There's like a like changing of identity, um, you know, intimacy shifts. Um, you know, suddenly my life is no longer about me, and it's about supporting this child, and that's beautiful. But it's also a shift. Um, what was the adjustment journey like for you as you kind of moved into that space? I think one of the thing, um, <clears throat> one of the weird things I reckon that you get in 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 the early in the early childhood phase is a not not a jealousy, but a certain sort of envy mm. of how natural your your wife or your partner is with the child. Like they, they, they're stressing, they're doing their own stressing out. Oh my God, I messed yeah. up. I've got this. But you still look at them and go, my God, that connection between the yeah. mother and the, and the baby is out of this world. And you, for the first couple of years, feel like, I, 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 I can't have that connection. I'll do every, I'll do what I can. Yeah. Um, I do tend to think and and so I think for that first three to five years, it, it's you know the the mother rules, yeah. right? and you, yeah. and and I think for a lot of men, it's an understanding that you got to step back a little bit, right? It's, you know, it's very hard for a, but particularly in my generation of sort of sort of you know, and I look at my dad, and I see you know sort of old you know really strong masculine cues and really strong just old-fashioned blokes yeah so australian and male and and i think it's it can be a little bit um you know um emasculating when you have those first couple of babies and you realize that it's not all about you and that you're sort of you're you're no longer really at the apex you know Mm. and and i think so a lot of boys men struggle with that first three to five years and i think (laughs) One of the things that gets 
men back into parenting? Because I actually think for, for for a lot of men that it's the first few years that are often the hardest because you lose a lot of sleep and, you know, you may have, I mean, you know, there was no paternity leave when I was having kids, but it's, it's so good now that the, 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 yeah. the, 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 the male or the, you know, that both parents, regardless of what's, what gender they are, but both parents can have time off to spend with the child because back, you know, back, back in the old, I'm not talking about the ye olden days, totally, but back yeah. in the early 2000s, you know, I, I was back at work the day after the child was born and, you know, Sally took some maternity leave, but then went back to work. But, you know, I was back, I, I think I was back day of, Yeah, wow. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I was running my own business and I was trying to, you know, trying to make a quid and, 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 you know, and, and it's all very well to look at, you know, in your fifties, you go, oh gosh, you know, we were cruising along. We we were not cruising along. You know, we were trying hard to buy a house. We were trying to make a make a buck. We were, you know, I was running a small business that was going okay. But you know, this is well before Four Pillars. But you yeah. know, because I've been a sort of a serial runner of business, not serial too. <laughs> I don't think I was a serial, but um, and I think those first few years are hard. But then I think once the once once the children get to sort of three, five, six, and you can be more active with them. And one of the things that I realized, you know, I'm a little overweight and, you know, a bit of a lazy bastard. I, I, rem- I've, I've, I remember thinking, God, I don't want to be fat and old and die. <laughs> so, I wanted, so I wanted to try to get fit and I probably got as fit as I ever have sort of between the ages of three to 15. And now I've regressed again into just drinking and eating a lot as, as, as the children have grown up. Um, but I think for mine, I think the, the the middle years of the father the father years I loved sort of four or five till fourteen or fifteen we can play sport with them you can take them out and show them things for the first time yeah. you know I love I love fucking roller coasters and I love like silly things and I love jumping off you know thing you know like as soon as it became an active role I loved it let's play cricket let's go to the football you know like my my children have had to become mm. obsessive sports fans and my daughter turns out to be the big Sydney Swans fan and my son um, loves all manner of sports and that sort of stuff but I mean I love going to the footy with her. Yeah. which is a very Melbourne thing because yeah. I grew up in Melbourne. Exactly. She was born in Melbourne. And, you know, we go to the football together and sometimes he'll be off to watch a rugby game or he'll be off doing something else or with his girlfriend or whatever and Audrey and I will just watch the Swans and analyse the game. And and that is a real Victorian and South Australian yeah. probably thing. thing. Um, but it's less of a thing in, in Sydney. Yeah. You know, it's not really a thing. You don't take your daughter to the rugby league. Um, but with, with, with George, it became like the, you know, I would wake him up late at night to watch a, a football game or I would, you know, take him, take him to, you know, his mother would take him to movies and she was always the more intellectual and the thoughtful side of things and they would go and watch that, you know, but with George, I would like, you know, come on, mate, there's a two o'clock FA Cup semi-final <laughs> between United and Chelsea and we've really got to win this one. He's like, oh, no, I just want to go to bed. I'm like, nah, mate, these are the memories. <laughs> So, so that's yeah, that's what I did. Poor, I love that poor kid. <laughs> poor kid. Yeah, now nah, we loved Manchester yeah. United. Um, so my my uh, my mum ran an ASX listed AI company, and I, I watched that from you know uh, observed, and it was intense, insanely intense. And she often mm. talked about unconventional parenting got her through it, which was basically just make it work any way you can. Yep. And, um, with you navigating the first business which was was it called liquid ideas liquid ideas liquid yeah still ideas. going today actually, still, and reasonably successful love it yeah. so navigating running your own shop and i know this i got obviously i have stuff but yep. also man cave yep. so the two things you know i kind of get this point going okay it's 
I need to work out how to put myself and family first at some point. I can't run this race the same forever. Things need to shift, which is natural in the entrepreneur's journey anyway. Yep. But how did you navigate um, you being the entrepreneur? Because I think one of the things that people don't get about being an entrepreneur is you're always thinking about the business. Yep. Like it is, and like I have some staff be like, yeah, I wake up thinking about work last night. And I was like, is there any other way? Mm. Like, mm. And that, that's part of it because it's a creation that comes out. But yeah, how did you navigate the the parenting and the the work side of things? I I don't think any of us really understand our absolute capacity Hmm. to do stuff, right? And I know men, uh, (laughs) you know, if we're going to be men, are notorious for not being able to do more than one thing at one time. But I don't think that that's always the case. I think. Pushing ourselves to, you know, I mean, sport has become a bit of an obvious theme here, but I love watching anyone who pushes themselves to a place where they probably, so many times they have thought, I can't get there. And they push themselves a little bit harder and find that they have this capacity beyond what they thought they had. And I just love this idea of, 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 of not just excellence, but just push push yourself beyond your comfort zone. And I think one of the things when you when you've got parenting and you've got a business, and you don't have, um, and I guess this is the difference between someone who sort of only wants to run their own business compared to someone who's in a job at a big company. And I'm having an interesting experience right now where I'm in a big company mm. for all of eight weeks, watching a lot of people who more power to them just are doing a job, yep. right? They are just coming in, typing and going to lunch and then typing and then leaving, right? And that is just completely fine, but but it's not it's not in my DNA. So you just have to find a way yeah. and you have to have support, you know, from your partner, yeah, from your, what, what I've always found I needed is a really good business partner and a really good human life partner who give you a bit of space, but are also demanding of you, call you to account. And then you've just got to keep going, you know, think, ask yourself, can I go a little bit, you know, is, is there any more space? You can't not commit fully, you know, to whether it be a business or whether it be parenting and, and flexible parenting, right? Whatever your mama call, what, what do your mama call? Unconventional parenting. Unconventional parenting is, I'm a go-to on that, right? Do what you've got to do, right? To get through. Um, fucking parenting manuals and all these fucking mm. books and ugh, you know and this idea that you can somehow sort of craft a, you know the perfect parenting model you know you can curate parenting into something that is just a a bullshit Instagram family life where you know if yeah. you've got half a brain you prick that bubble and it's just it's yeah they're all they're all ridiculous and and I, I think unconventional parenting I like that conceptually because I don't think I'm a conventional parent by any stretch right I don't think my I don't think my kids would say that I don't think you know I don't think other parents would say that I think often probably other parents would look at us and go wow that that they're a bit loose um, but <laughs> but the gin owner yeah. well I think that's yeah. a, we have become the default house for people to go to for not that pre-drink not, yeah not that they drink alcoholic. before before they're 18 but let's just say hypothetically they did clearly there was one house that was always going to be better stocked than the others um, but yeah I, I, I think it's a, a really good a, a good concept you, you just got to push yourself as hard as you possibly can and that's why I love sport you know we were uh, i was actually thinking as i walked down here today you know you, you asked um 
did I have a mentor or did I have a male role models and that sort of stuff? I, the, the people I always admired the most were the the great sports coaches or the great mm. players, you know, that 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 seemed to be able to push themselves beyond what you thought that they, they were capable of, and they saw and they were able to take people with them. Yeah, you know, whether it's Wayne Bennett or Jack Gibson or or Alex Ferguson or or, or some of the great players, yeah. I just I loved the way that they could, and they you know you talk about relentlessness. Yeah, like. Getting up every, you know, Ferguson, 25, 27 seasons, you know, getting up yeah. every year. Bennett, 30 plus seasons and every year. what he's doing again, like. Every yeah. year getting up and saying, I want to make these young men better. Yeah. Right. I want to work with them so that they can achieve what they've dreamt of and what they're capable of. Mm. And seeing things. This is what I love about coaching, I think. And I think, you know, I, I'm. I don't know whether I'm an entrepreneur, but I'm, I love coaching. Mm. And it's interesting. I've coached a lot of young women um, because the PR industry tends to attract 90% plus yeah. women. And now in the gin business, it's about a 50-50 split. Yeah. So it's interesting because I haven't coached young men as much as I've coached young women. And, um, and, and only because the Matildas are on my mind right now, right? Yeah. Because they had a spectacular win last night. And I have a great friend of mine, the same age as me, and she was... She used to lament 20 years ago the lack of great team sport for young girls yeah. because she said, because she used to run a business with a lot of men and she said, you know, men un understand a bit more about the whole team and teamwork and being, you know, it's okay to be yelled at by your best friend on the football field. You fucking, why didn't you pass it to me, you clown? Yeah. And then drop it, leave it behind and move on. And she said a lot of the young women in her workforce at the time, and so this is 20 years ago, hung on to a lot of that. Oh, she was mean to me on the, you know, she was mean to me and in the office. And like, oh yeah, but if you if you'd grown up playing fierce netball like I have, you know, we're really mean to each other. But we now know how to yep. move on. And I think this generation of young women who are who are, who are getting these incredible opportunities to play team sports, yeah, I think it's going to be, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's it's such an empowering thing. Like I was in tears last night watching those Matildas and mm. that young, the young girls screaming and the young boys screaming in yeah. support for them. It was a really it was a really special moment, and I think that um, I I read somewhere yesterday that the Matildas are now the second most popular Australian national team behind the Australian cricket team. Now, who would have thought? Out, you know, head of the Socceroos and wow. head of the Wallabies, and yeah. I'm like, I mean, it is a bit of a moment for them now, yeah. given it's a World Cup. But I mean, I thought, fuck, how good is that? Yeah, you know, when I grew up, we saw women play sport once every four years, and it was swimming. Yeah, or Kathy Freeman. Yeah. You know, or, you know, uh, it was the Olympics. Yeah. It's the only time we really saw women excel at sport. Yeah. And now it's it's just so awesome to watch a, a women's Ashes series happening at the same time as a men's Ashes series. And it's so great to watch. And I, yeah. How, how did we get on to women's We're sport? Here now. <laughs> but, but it is interesting just watching the, the shift. And it's like really great for boys. Mm. Right. Learning that, learning. Oh, yeah. Watching women play sport because boys always had this monopoly on watched sport yeah. if you like yeah. and, and women's sport was always so far out there and I think it gave a lot of boys this sort of braggadocio sort of they could fucking yeah. pull their chest back we wear but I mean you know we play footy and we, we're the men you know and I think it's unreal it's a it's an absolute wall buster yeah and, and only getting bigger considering the generational investment that men's sport has had too versus the tiny drop in the ocean that women's sport has had this is like week one against year 50 exactly right? this is how far behind they are but this is how much opportunity comes
Shifting out of uh, women's sport into uh, your, uh, your, you've gone journalist um, into liquid ideas and then into four pillars. Give us the, just the synthesis of liquid ideas. In, in particular, what I'm interested in, how, does, how did that, was that the training ground for four pillars? Well, I mean, in essence, I, 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 so the, the, the genesis of liquid ideas is pretty simple. I went to, um, I moved to Melbourne because I'd studied wine and I was, and I'd done journalism. So I became like a wine journalism guy. So I could, um, one of the things I, I did a lot of was communication. So, you know, I was quite a good writer and I was a decent presenter. So I started ed, sort of teaching people about wine within a, within a company, right? And I would write press releases about the wines and I would introduce the winemakers to the media and I would host events and that sort of stuff. So, and then I went and did a, like a master's of marketing, like a, like an MBA with a marketing stream at the Melbourne business school at the behest of, um, of a great friend of mine. She said, you know, you, you know, you should go and get an MBA. You should go and get a proper degree post, yeah. you know, at 30, right? Also at the same time I'm thinking about having babies. Also at the same time I'm getting uh, – I had, I did it just before I got married and just before we had children. So it's a really good time. Anyone who's thinking about doing that master's degree, fit it in before you have babies and, yeah. and you know, because it, it, that that might be the – you know, when we were talking about capacity pushing, that might be just one bit too far. Um, and then I just um, – met a girl in an entrepreneurship actually in a, in a, in a class that we did on weekends. And I said, well, we should set up a business that does all the stuff I'm doing, like for wineries where we help to, them to promote themselves because they're terrible at promoting mm. themselves. They make all this nice stuff and then they all do the same thing. They just send a bottle out to a, to James Halliday, a wine writer and hope that he writes a nice review about them or maybe that sommelier will buy. I said, we could set up a business that does that for them. Right, because they're no good at it. Like it was finding a simple niche, like any business, um, where you saw someone making a good product, but they had no idea how to get it into the market. So that's marketing, I guess. Well, yes, it is. Um, so for, we we did an entrepreneurship subject about creating this business, and we got a good score. And I said, well, we should do it. Like we went to the pub, and I said, well, why don't we just quit our jobs and do this thing? And she had an actual job and I was already doing it anyway. And I, so we started and so we set it up. Her and I worked together for five years. And then after five years, Liquid Ideas was a big enough business to have a lot of, you know, we were doing Bundy Rum and we were doing VB because we'd moved out of wine and we were doing some work for Woolworths and Dan Murphy's and, you know, plus a whole bunch of wineries. And the business was growing. And, and it was PR oriented. Yeah. So yeah, basically yeah. what I was just so basically help, how do we help promote? Yeah. These so let's say Bundy Rum has a big partnership with the Wallabies, or yep. they're doing a big events in the. You know how do we how do we? It was the old fashioned. <laughs> my God, we used to talk about influencing the influencers. Yes, this is before influencers were invented. By the way, yes. right, way before Instagram existed and before Facebook existed. We used to say, well, who are the people in this category who influence other decision makers? Yep. You know, and it might be a country and western singer for Bundy, or it might be a rugby player, or it might be a sommelier if you're doing a fancy wine, or it might be a wine writer, or it might be, you know, it might be a early days talk show host yep. or a radio presenter. And so our job was to find who these influencers were and get our products who we represented to them. So it was yep. old-fashioned third-party endorsement, right? Yep. PR, if you like, public yep. relations. And it was, it was going pretty well, but we had a lot of clients in Sydney and a lot of clients in Melbourne, but we were all based in Melbourne. And I went, well, why don't we split the business in two and I'll take the Sydney clients because I was kind of keen to move back here because my wife also from Sydney and we'd had a baby and we said, well, let's just, I'll, I'll take the Sydney clients. You take the Melbourne clients and we'll split the business in two. So I kept the Liquid Ideas name 
Angie, who was my first partner, kept you know ran ran a great business for the next fifteen years as well. And look what ideas still exist today, and it still does. You know, like Canadian Club bad sweater days, and it still yeah. works for Four Pillars, and it still works for Singapore Airlines. It's still a really good. PR company, but everything's changed in that industry PR's now. Massively. Right yeah. now, it's a lot of influencer engagement. Yeah. It's a lot of Instagram and Facebook. So it's a really interesting business to watch it evolve. It's a lot of digital content. Yeah. Um, but in its in its essence, it's the same. Just the channels have changed. Yeah. Amazing. Well, yeah. The principal endpoint is the same. It's just how do you find it given the context we've got. Correct. Yeah. I mean, just the, yeah. the 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 old newspapers have disappeared, but there's plenty of content you know on online. So you know if 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 you care about your restaurant, you know, maybe we're launching some restaurants. We do a lot of work with hospitality. If you're launching a restaurant, you used to just hope that you got a really good review in the Sydney Morning Herald. And now you want to make sure the concrete yeah. playground and, yeah. and you know, broadsheet and all these other, you know, and a couple of those key influencers are talking about, it's yeah. just getting people to talk about your brand and your business. Trusted people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Rather than grifters yes. and urges. And there are... A lot of them. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Particularly in social media age. Well, social media yeah. and also if you're in alcohol and food because mm. they're thinking, well, how do I get myself free gin? I'll yes. pretend that I'm influential on the Instagram machine. <laughs> yes. Fucking hell. <laughs> Stop. Um, so kind of makes sense, whatever the next thing is, that it's going to be, if you think, you know, it's funny as we retrospectively join the dots, you go, hmm, that made sense. <laughs> yeah, per- perfect execution of the plan. Yeah. Um, where did the inception of Four Pillars come from? Well, it came from that. So I'd been doing, I'd been doing, so this business, this Liquid Ideas business has now been going 10 years. So it's 2013 or 2012. Cameron and I, sort of my co-founder, he is down in the Yarra Valley and he's in the wine trade and he had, he's the Olympic guy and he, I'd worked with him and we were making a bit of wine on the side and thinking, you know, we'd love to do a booze brand, but we want to do it properly. And then we met a guy called Matt Jones, who's like the kind of brainiac guy behind Four Pillars, who's the brand guy and the digital guy. And he was much more sort of forward focused than us. Like, you know, when he came and said we should do a crowd equity campaign to start, you know, on um, yep. virtual, what was it called back then? It was called... Um, I can't remember what it was called. You know, like a, a, the the OG. Yeah, the OG. Uh, not an equity, not an equity raise, but just a crowdfunding. Yeah, I, right. Yeah. And um, we, I was like, what the fuck's that? Well, I'm just pretending that I know what it is. Going, oh yeah, okay, yeah, that looks pretty cool. Yeah, why don't we do one of them? <laughs> and so he was the guy who pulled it all together. So I mean, I think when you when you look at four pillars, that you know, Cameron was the guy who created all the gins, and he's this smart guy who distilled and created bloody yeah. Shiraz gin and all that sort of stuff. And and Matt was the guy who pulled it all together in terms of the digital, you know, the digital and the brand and all that, all the stuff that made Four Pillars beautiful. And I was the the nexus of the relationships guy mm. and the guy who knew the right people, whether they were the right bartenders or the right retailers or, yeah. or the right journalists, you know, and I kept Four Pillars in yeah. the conversation. And the public zeitgeist, like it's relevant just here in your yep. psyche. Yep. yep. And so everyone knew more about Four Pillars than they, right, than they had a right to mm. earlier. Because we were getting lots of press releases and lots yep. of media and lots of, you know, people back in the old days talking about it on radio and on television. And, you know, we, we because Cameron was good at his job, they, yeah. we won lots of awards, right? We, we kept winning. and But one of the things about winning awards, and this is one of the things that, that, that a lot of young people in the industry don't understand. They think, oh, we just want a gold medal at the blah, blah, blah show. That's nothing unless you let a million people know about it, right? Yeah. If you just send it out to your 12 customers, who gives a shit? But how do you get it on, in the old days, 3AW or 2GB? Yeah. Or how do you get 
how do you get Buddy Franklin to yep. to post about it without having to pay him you know ten grand? Or how do you get uh, you know how do you build that database so you don't have twelve customers? You got hundred thousand customers. So one of the things just on that point, I've heard it described as uh, content is king, but distribution is queen, and she wears the pants. Yep, and it's that same principle. You can have the most, you know, the Ferrari sitting in the garage, but unless it's being driven around, no one knows you have the Ferrari. Not that we endorse that at any way. Oh no, by all, by all means, drive a Ferrari. <laughs> if you can get that, I have an e-bike. Um, but I think, um, it, it, but it always has been. It's not just been, you know, too many. One of my frustrations with creative agencies, yep. you know, like in yes. the old days, ad agencies, yeah, is they're happy to come up with great creative ideas and everything else. But I mean, it's like how. Not just how do you do it, but how do you make sure hundreds of thousands of yep. millions of people see it, but also how do you get them to love that brand, yeah, right, and and buy it? Because yep. at the end of the idea, at the end of the day, you know, effectiveness in advertising and brand is just it's called sales, mate. Yeah, <laughs> and then it's yeah. called return sales and repeat sales, and it's endorsed. So, so endorsements post sale. So someone buys it and goes, "Fuck, that stuff is awesome." Mm. You got to buy that. Yeah. You got to try these four pillars. You got to buy that stuff, right? Yeah. That stuff is better than the Rex owner, right? So yeah. buy it and tell all your mates to buy it. And that's it's marketing and sales and brand are not particularly complicated. Yeah. Um, but they're not necessarily easy to execute. Mm. And you've got to be, you know, you, you, you and 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 you've got to be simple. Too many people in marketing and brand think they're too fucking clever and they think that there so many people you know, I, have, I have a i have a long-standing sort of um disconnect with the with the marketing industry because they all think they're smarter than the average person they all think that they're a little they're all sitting i mean this is i, I don't go into these agencies anymore but i used to have to go into them a lot like yeah. the old ad agencies and the yeah. old creative agencies and frankly they were just almost exclusively populated by wankers who were men, right? And I hated them. And I hated what they came up with. And, you know, and then the ma and the, the manager of the brand would go, oh, you know, they're so creative and they're so amazing. I'm like, they're such – and they don't even – they, they couldn't connect with actual humans. Right? They lived in this sort of – you know, well, they all lived in Bondi probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I anyway, there's a – there's something about, you know, if I were to say anything, if you want to be a brand owner and be a, a, a successful, well, I don't care if it's an entrepreneur or business mm. person or whatever, stay in touch with real people. Mm. Don't get up your own ass yeah. right, and think that you're fancier than everyone else, yeah. right? Be be in your, in your brand and business and venue or whatever it is all the time and yeah. understand what real people want. Don't. Yeah, and that doesn't mean that you can't have an elevated, you know, that you can't be smart or that you can't have gone to a good school or anything else, but you just can't be a wanker because Australians have the greatest, yeah. richest and most in-tune wanker radar of, of all nations, yeah. right? I don't believe in the tall poppy syndrome, yeah. but I certainly believe in the tall wanker syndrome, yeah. right? Which is, I don't mind you being successful, yeah. but if you become a dick... You're gone. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. I love Pat Rafter, but I think Greg Norman's a dick. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, you know, it's okay to be successful. Just don't be successful and lose touch with reality. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Running Man Cave, which is with 
tens of thousands of teenage boys, which is, uh, you know, and groups of them. So it's a very notorious crowd to walk into. Mm. And one of the things that like our team are so attuned to is they have the best bullshit detectors in the world mm. and they sniff fear a mile away. Yep. And they'll explore. They're like horses. <laughs> horses can smell fear. <laughs> they can, they can. The... The, the reality then that like that transitions into for us, if I put my stuff hat on, is like the same principles translate. And it's, and I think, yeah, the, the, particularly with Australia, I don't know where it's come from. Like I remember reading this book, it was called The Australian Leadership Paradox, What It Takes to Lead in the Lucky Country. And it was basically like white Australia is effectively a Western civilization built from convicts, right? Mm. So we have a really high dependence on authority, but a low trust. We love the underdog story. Yes. We love the larrikin nature. Yes. And the one they did say is tall poppy syndrome. So whether that's dickhead policy or not. But what one of their theories of many was, well, if you're, you know, a trauma-based culture, which is then in a jail cell, mm. really depend on your prison warden, but you don't trust them. Yep. Love the larrikin nature because it brings up morale. Yep. Um, you're all underdogs. And if anyone's doing better than you, you bloody let them know about it. Yep. So it's an interesting, like, whether that's true or not, I think you can extract, like, the principles of how that kind of plays out in Australian culture. Yeah, you probably can. And that's what's sort of built the, 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 the I guess, the, 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 the old fashioned Australian culture. And I think that's also why we're probably pretty good soldiers. If you mm. look at, if you look at all those things there, you know, it's why we probably did pretty well at, in, in most of the wars because we were, we were able to stand up and, and fight. You know, if we believed in it, but we were also able to call bullshit on yeah. on, on on dickhead leaders. I think one of the things about the one of the things about modern Australia that I like is that modern Australia is not anti success, right? I don't think it is anti. Um, right, we don't want you to get too far ahead of yourself, yeah. right? It's it's about how you res- how you relate and respond to it yeah. that is the key, and that is the you know. If, if, if one thing in that book is, is that I think is most true about Australia, it's egalitarianism, right? It's this sense that you're not like as soon as some dickhead wants to put a beach club on Bondi, right? And that's happened a few times. People go, nah, 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 nah. that beach is for all of us, mm. right? That is, there is not a spot on Bondi Beach that I can't sit at whether I am the, the king or whether I am the pauper, mm. right? And that I love, yeah. right? I just, and, the sense and, you know, and, and it is a, it is a, you know, I, I, I love sitting at the footy with whoever the hell it happens to be. And you bond with that person over your love of what particular team it happens to be. And you don't, you know, I know that there are people sitting in their corporate suites and all that sort of stuff. And good luck to them, man. I got mm. no problem with them because often they're as passionate a fan as anyone, but they've had a bit of success. Yeah. But don't think that that makes you better yeah and i think it makes you maybe luckier it makes means maybe you worked a bit harder but don't think that makes you a better human than the than 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 that person which is tricky right because i agree and when society particularly in the age of instagram is like validating your self-worth on your status which get comes through like materialism i think that's one of the interesting things is how often success or like financial return does change people like it's it's more common than not i would say and that's why it's so rare to find like a, a like who would I think of? Like I, I don't know them, but if I think about like the Cannon Brooks and Mike Farquhar from the Atlassian guys mm. who are still cruising around and they're like barefoot and their hats and their like yep. hoodies, right? And it's like and I know the tech industry's kind of taken that aesthetic for a ride, but there is something like relatable about that opposed to the like 
I don't know, you know, the, the full suited, yep. you know, persona that gets put out there too. Well, let's use that to kind of segue into Four Pillars. So the early days, like you you had 20 mates. That was kind of the, one of the inceptions or people who were on the extension to kind of support the early journey. But I'm interested from an entrepreneur's vantage point because there's a story that kind of gets like told that's like this happened and then this happened. But what was the what was the origin? And then when, I'm curious about like the points where it went from an inflection point to the next one and not necessarily like a sexy inflection point where like you really had to make some decisions. Yeah, I mean, so the, the the way the business was structured was that there were three founders, and we took twenty percent of the business each, and then we put we gave twenty mates a chance to put in not a lot of money and take two percent of the business each, and basically we sold it to them as so this was before you know equity crowdfunding existed, but basically we sold it to them as a bit of a an alcoholic racehorse concept, right? Don't put yeah. don't put any more than you can afford to to lose. Put a bit in. One day, if this goes well, you might see a bit of a return. And that was how the business was structured at the beginning. And one of the things that I think enough, not enough small business startup owners, I I always, sometimes I always, I I sometimes get a bit of a thing with the word entrepreneur because I've, I've, I've always, I've never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I've thought of myself as a small business owner and a guy who likes creating stuff. Right, that stuff. There we go. Um, I don't know why. I just thought entrepreneurs. I, I grew up in the in the age when entrepreneurs were sleazebags. Like Christopher Scase was everyone's like poster boy of entrepreneurs. Yeah, and I went, I didn't ever want to be that guy. Right, and entrepreneurs were like Alan Bond. Yeah, and yeah. guys who ended up just all being criminals. Yeah. Right, and that was the eighties and early nineties in Australia. And the this, the phrase made me just mm. absolutely. I would blanch. I, I would. I would. I would shudder when someone said entrepreneur. So I've always sort of shied away from it, if you like. But so that's how Four Pillars started. And then one of the commitments that we gave the founders, and again, another one, another piece of advice, you know, is that you're never going to set up a successful business if it's your, if it's your bit on the side, you got to, you got to at some point go all in. So we told our investors, right, I've got another job here running Liquid Ideas and Matt's got a bit of a consultancy over here. Cameron's going all in from day one and I commit to being all in by year two and Matt will com- commit to being all in by year two as well or whatever the numbers were, I can't quite remember. But when um, you have to, you know, if I'm going to put money in, uh, this is a learning as an investor as well as a, as, a, as a business owner, is that if you're investing in a business, make sure that the guys or the girls in the business are all in as well. One, that they've got their own money in it and two, that they've got their all their time in it because very few people have ever made a success of a side hustle. The side hustle has to become the main hustle yep. very quickly, yeah. right? And it got to be all in. And too many people in, in our industry, right, there are now, when we started, there were 12 gin distillers in Australia. There's now 250, of which I reckon 200 are a bit of a side hustle while they do something else. Or maybe they're waiting for their whiskey to mature or they're actually also doing an IT job or they've actually got a, you know, it's... They're not going to work. They're yeah. not going to succeed. Yeah. Right? They'll have nice little tiny micro cottage businesses, but they're never going to become big, yeah. genuine, powerful brands and businesses. Um, <clears throat> and then a couple of years later, we asked our same investors for some more money and all of them bar one ponied up for a second time to keep their, their share. Um, and that's, I think, when we thought, oh, okay, so it's not just us who thinks this is going okay. Mm. It's it's um, It's our investors, that's good. Um, I mean, we had given them a 
shitload of free gin by this stage. So, you know, they're thinking, oh, well, I'm going to go back in because we're getting most of our investment back in so three, three what, peers. what happened in those early years for you? Because you, you, you have to, in that initial um, kind of, whatever you call it, like pre-seed or family and friends angel round. Yep, 2013 to 2015. So yep. you, you got to demonstrate some growth and competence yep. and yep. effectively establish the infancy of a brand. Yep. What what happened in that time? We did, you know, this is where I suppose I came in handy. Matt came in handy in that he was able to present us as looking more professional than we yeah. probably were. Cameron was making what turns out to be two or three of the world's best gins almost immediately. Also lucky. Not just lucky, but, you know, you know I guess it's a mixture of luck mm. and, and, and good management. And then I was able to open the doors. Right, so that was my job was to yeah. how do we get into Dan Murphy's? How do we get into the the big retail businesses? How do we go offshore? How do we get into all the cool bars? That sort of stuff. And so I was helping that part of the business. You know, how do we get people to talk about us without us paying on radio and everything else? So that was the start of the the, the business um, in the first two years. And then you know, how do we maintain sales and grow? market share in what was essentially in those days, and it's only just 10 years ago, so it's not forever ago, and it's an Australian gin market that didn't really exist. Mm. I mean, we had the good fortune of being the first serious player in the category. Yeah, There were a couple of other smaller players in the category who we looked at and thought, right, well, I think we can... I think yeah. we can knock them over, over in the first couple of years, yeah. right? And then I think we need to be looking at the big players, the Hendrix or the you know Tanquerays or whatever. But mainly Hendrix was the one we were looking at and saying, how do we get how yeah. do we get to that? And it's always good to have a a bit of a north. You know, is that a north star? I don't know what it is, but but something that yeah. to say right at one point, how are we going to? You know, we want to be next to Hendrix on the shelf. We want to be the same price as Hendrix. We want to be in the same bars and retailers and you know, restaurants. And so it was able, we were able to have a pretty easy focus. One of the things is, you know, have a pretty simple, you know, business is, business should be as uncomplicated as possible, right? Certainly the business I'm yeah. in. Because you need to be able to explain it to everyone, not just investors, but everyone needs to understand. So what are you trying to do? Well, we're trying to make an Australian gin that's the best in the world. Fuck, okay. Can we do that? Like, you know, mm. when we started, people were like, is that even a thing? I thought, I thought only England could make gin. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you can make gin. It's like, did you think only France could make wine? And they're like, oh, yeah, I suppose probably 50 years ago, everyone thought only France could make wine or Italy, you know? And I'm like, yeah, so not only England can make gin, we can make gin as well, just like we can make whiskey, but we're, we're only going to make gin. And keep it simple, right? So the other good decision we made, and it was never not going to be the case, is we said we make gin and only gin. We're not going to be that distillery that also makes a bit of vodka and mm. a bit of whiskey and a bit of rum and a bit of beer or whatever, you know, there's a lot of, if you, you, there are, they're everywhere at the moment. You go down to the local little distillery around the corner and there's his vodka and there's his gin and there's yeah. his, and I'm like, I always use the example, right? Um, Johnny Walker, pretty good whiskey maker, not screwing around making gin, not screwing around making vodka. They may be owned by, at the very the top level, at the conglomerate level, it may be Diageo, right? But they're never going to screw around with a brand. They're never going to say Tanqueray. Oh, gee, it's doing really well in gin. I wonder how it would go in whiskey. Mm. You know, they go, we've got a whiskey. It's called Johnny Walker. <laughs> and so I was always very, like, super firm on that. Yeah. Do one thing incredibly. Yeah. Because it's an easier story to tell as well. Yeah. Right? We are going to make the world's best gin in the Yarra Valley in Australia. Mm. Okay? How are you going to do that? Because we've got the best produce we got the 
best distiller, we've got the best equipment, and we've got the best relationships. And there's no reason why Australia can't make the best in the world, right? And there was a little bit of Aussie go, 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 you know, in it. Yeah. Because we knew we had to win at home first, you know, like, again, I'm going to make another sporting, you know, analogy, but I had this, like, and um, thing that I used to pathologically say, which is, you've got to win at home before you start to win away, right? Build, you know, like, and every, this is basic, just out of 101 football, build a fortress at home, Yeah. Right. Do not let anyone beat you on your home ground, right? At Old Trafford or yeah. at Brookie Oval yeah. or at, you know, Princess Park or the G or whatever it happens to be or Adelaide Oval, right? And then once people know you can't be beaten at home, right, they'll drop their shoulders mm. a little bit and then we can start winning on the road. Yeah. Right? So then how, what, what – and, and, and doing business overseas is the most fascinating, confusing like com- com- complete, like I knew nothing about exporting um, gin, and it is impossibly complicated. <laughs> and we made so many screw ups, and it is to this day, like as recently as last week, you know, it is so complicated selling gin to Americans, or at least of all the Chinese and the Japanese and the English and the uh, Northern Africa, you know, keen, we're going quite well in Nairobi at the moment, you know, but it's, and you, you don't even really know why, yeah. you know, but there might just be a guy, yeah, like one or two people there who just love this Australian gene and they want to make a difference. And they think that, that yeah, it's, so it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating and complex business exporting Australian products around the world and then yep. there's the two years of COVID where you can't even do it yep. you know and it, it's a um, it's been a fascinating journey I'm not going to lie it, 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 and it opens your eyes to any number of any number of um, different cultural conversations because alcohol plays a different part in so many absolutely cultures yeah like it, it doesn't play the same role in any two countries yeah and in America it plays a different role in every state you know and and um, and gin itself, as a subcategory, has got certain baggage in different mm. n- wherever you go. Some people think gin is really cool, and some people think gin is just what my granny drank, and some people think gin is just going to make me cry, and it's like uncool because tequila is cool, and and it's a fascinating puzzle where you never have all the pieces, um, but it never ceases to be. And 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 the best thing about selling gin, both into Australia and around the world, is that you. At the end of the day, and this is the joy I think you can get from doing a job that you love, is at the end of the day, it always ends up in a bar with a bartender having a drink. Yeah. And you guys put a lot of effort into training or like boots on the ground, like training bartenders or those at like liquor stores or anything like that. We right? have to. At the end of yeah. the day, at the end of the day, someone else always sells your product. Yeah. Right, we sell into a a shop or a bar or a restaurant. You know, we can sell direct through our own channels. You know, yep. through our own website, but that's always only going to be that. You know, yep. a very small percentage of our overall sales. Um, so we've got to rely on a third party yep. to do our selling for us. And if that third party doesn't know enough about our product or doesn't really like our product or hasn't really met the right people, then they're just going to often they'll just sell the cheaper product. Or they'll just take what the customer asks. So if I walk into a bar and I go, yeah, mate, um, gin and tonic. 
He goes, what gym would you like? He goes, nah, fuck, I don't know, man, mm. whatever. And he goes, he's got two options there. When I go, oh, what, a beef eating? He goes, yeah, sure. Mm. He goes, y- you, re- you really want to try this new Australian one? Oh, yeah, Australian gin. What's that? It's four pills. He says, it's a buck more, but let me tell you, it's going to be awesome. Very rarely will someone not take that. Take that, right? And But that guy, we've got to trust that guy, and we need hundreds of thousands of that guys. Yeah. Right? So they need to be in bars in Vietnam, and they need to be bars in England, and bars in Ballarat, Bondi, Bendigo, Byron Bay, mm. Bunbury. I'm just going with all the Bs. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Brisbane. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it and, that, and that's, that's old-fashioned, you know, what do they say? You know, leather on the sidewalk. Yeah. You just got to go to all these bars, chat to them. They got to believe in you. You can't bullshit them, yeah. particularly in Australia, but also, you know, it's it's in Australia. They they're like, well, they want they they really, and this is why I believe in the the Australian consumer and the Australian human. They want you to succeed. Yeah, they're like, fuck yeah, man, yeah. come on. You know, some won't because some will go. Well, I've got a contract with Henry, <laughs> yeah. so you can go fuck yourself. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> right, there's the door. As much as I want you to succeed, I get a better rebate from selling Hendrix. That's right. And also, I get free trips to Scotland, <laughs> and you can only take me to Hillsville in the Yarra <laughs> Valley. Here's a story that I, 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 just occurred to me about how complicated it is selling into America. Right, we were in um, we were in Chicago last year, and you know, there's a there's a there's a proliferation of celebrity brands in the U.S. Particularly, massive. Like yeah. George Clooney's got his. Yeah. Uh, George Clooney's got the Rock's got Terramana. Yep, uh, the, mainly in the tequila space. Yeah, but now in gin, I mean, yeah. there's a certain gin called Aviation, owned by uh, a Ryan Reynolds dude. Done very well. And that only sold for five hundred million U.S. dollars, maybe a year and a yep, half ago. And Casamigos, which was George Clooney's brand, sold to Diageo for seven hundred million US dollars plus three hundred million in an earnout, so a billion dollar business. So, if when you think of George Clooney, right, biggest star in the world, close to, he's going to have made more money in his career out of his tequila business than he probably will out of his movies, wow. right? And Ryan Reynolds will have made it at more than half of his earnings out of his aviation gin. You know, it's the aviation gin business that's spinning his. Wrexham yeah. Football Club and, and you know and oh, he also made a bunch of money out of Mint Mobile oh, yeah. okay so Ryan Reynolds <laughs> has done well forget about him he's not the example <laughs> anyway back to me <laughs> so we were we were we were in um, we were in Chicago there's a there's a huge liquor store chain called Binnie's and um, we were talking to the buyer at Binnie's and we're like you know mate you know Aussie gin you know good on you and uh, you know we'll we'll send you some free bottles and you know we'll you know because you you try to buy their favour and you know one day mate if you go real well maybe one of your you or one of your staff can fly to australia and we can show you our amazing distillery in hillsville <laughs> which is a little town outside of melbourne you know you heard of it he's like fucking looking at you going, yeah this sounds like the most you know because the next guy coming in is saying well i'm i have a chateau in cognac or you know <laughs> yeah. or, you know right um but the best one is and, he, and, and we and i left the meeting and you know, i thought oh fuck i think that went pretty well and then I was talking to some other uh, people in liquor at a function a couple of days later. And he goes, yeah, well, you might be up against it, you know, because, you know, the, um, the other day the Casamigos guy came in and um, they were talking about what they might be able to do to sell a bit more Casamigos. And they said to him, well, would your mum, would you and your mum like to go to the Oscars with George Clooney? <laughs> 
And I went, so fucking how much did they buy? And he goes, oh, hundreds of thousands of bottles. Oh, <laughs> like, my God. So that's what we're up against because, you know, Ryan Reynolds in aviation can oh, walk in totally. and say, well, I, would yeah. you like to come to a Wrexham game with me? You yeah. know, if you buy 7,000 pallets of gin. Yeah. They don't even sell it. Yeah, they're, they're a strong yes. <laughs> uh, it's it's <laughs> hard to beat that. But those guys have nailed the art of leverage of attention and influence. Like, because yeah. I think there's like, we saw that with like micro influences on Instagram. But like, those guys are playing with public attention in a really remarkable way to get their product to sell. Same thing for, for, but also like the growth trajectory of Four Pillars. You've had to fucking put it in it's like, graft it's graft you yeah. know uh, it, it's it's relentlessness people ask me if you were to ask me what the what success look like distilled success in business and it's just it's relentlessness yeah right it's great to have a good idea but there are so many kids with good ideas yeah better ideas than ours yeah there are people with prettier labels or anything else but we won the graft yeah Right, yeah. we had we had good ideas, good branding, good people, good juice, and everything else, and then we just worked harder at all of it. Yeah, right. I remember one distiller saying to me, "Oh, you know, gosh, we did like four consumer dinners last year," and I went, "What four? Yeah, you know, like where we did, you know, we showed the whiskey and we did dinner and we hosted them and everything else." I said, "Mate, we did four last week." Right, fair income. Right, every time you do a consumer dinner, you've turned sixty people into fans. I said, "Mate, you're going to be doing yeah. hundreds of these things, right? Not for a year." Mm. And he was thinking, Ugh. and this was the same with wine. Like, oh, we had to do three wine dinners last year. Like, oh, and it's terrible. And we have to meet our consumers, yeah. and we had to pour them all the wine, and they ask all these boring questions. I'm like, "Mate, you are in the wrong game. Yeah, yeah, you can't win doing that. You need to do them relentlessly mm. in every market." All the time. There's a great mate of mine who runs a wine business. You know, Sean Smith, you know, it's a fantastic wine business, right? Michael Hillsmith's turning 70 this year, and he is relentless in his promotion of his own product. And he doesn't need to be. He's the, he, he's an, he, he's turning 70. He's the first master of wine in Australia. He's out of a Hillsmith family, you know, so they're nobility in yeah. South Australia. And he, he popped into my place the other morning for a coffee, right, and had done all these events. And he had been with a bunch of publicans in Newcastle the day before showing them Shaw and Smith, right? And, you know, in with passion, enthusiasm and drive at nearly 70, already successful, but absolutely not going to take his foot off off the... And he's like, what do, what do I... I reckon you and me, Stu, we should do something together. I'm like, you are old, man. Like, <laughs> slow down. And you can just, he's not going to slow down. Live so. What's next? Yeah. Should, should we make vermouth together? I'm like, I don't know how to make vermouth, but that seems like a fun idea. Like, and I watched him and the dynamic with his daughter, who's, you know, taking mm. over his business. And, you know, when you said before about it, you, you learn from what you see and what, you know, and I can see in her eyes, like, this is what I have to do if I'm going to become successful. I look at this guy. He lives well. Right, yeah. I'm not saying that you'd grind yourself into submission. Yeah, but it's a, it's such a great lesson. I just loved seeing him and and his enthusiasm and his love of his own products and his love of what he does. And you know, I yeah, I flew to Newcastle. I had lunch with all these publicans. Like I can see a thousand. So there's nine hundred of the thousand winemakers. Nine hundred and seventy of them would have sent someone else to do that. Yeah. Absolutely. Would have said, oh, I don't need to talk to yeah. publicans in Newcastle. He's like, why wouldn't I go? Yeah. Newcastle's a growing region. It's great, you know, 
and 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 it sets a standard for the rest of his business as i hope it set a standard in my business that you know like like i'm off to i'm hosting a thing tonight right and i'm pretty sure i could have said no but you know someone said i think this is a really good group of people you should be coming in and doing it and i'm like mm. i'm only 4 weeks away from retirement <laughs> <laughs> do i really have to <laughs> the last 50 meters of the 400 yeah and yeah. my head my head's scraping the track and i'm tired and my, my legs are burning but i'm i, I get it and yeah. i think i've got to keep showing up right i think showing up is the is the is one of the, is the key so how how have you managed the grind? And I, I ask that as someone who's just been or in a capital raise, which has just been fucking insanely challenging, relentless, managing all the different stakeholders. And it's been probably the hardest four months of my life, I would say, without a doubt. Like really some like real low points. And you haven't had babies yet though. <laughs> um, here it comes. Thanks, here it for, comes. thanks for letting me know when I'm at the bottom of the barrel. Yep. Um, Not even close. Not even close. But this comes back to your points, right? So, and this is why I think these conversations are like very healthy from like a generational point of view, right? Because I'm like hustling hard, right? Meeting with people all around town, Sydney, Melbourne, flying, doing all the things, pitching the dream. And like there's such positive sentiment. And it's also just entirely exhausting. Mm-hmm. It's like each game, I sometimes feel like the Joker, you know, where he like it puts a smile <laughs> on yeah. in the mirror yep. and goes again. Um, but it's all, it just, it has a tax. So you guys have done a lot in a short amount of time. How have you managed that? Well, the first thing is that it's, it's, it, there's a short amount of time, 10 years, you know, which is four pillars, but there's 20 years of grind before that as well, right? So mm. first of all, it's being able to understand that you're capable of it. Um, it's, and it, and 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 the key is loving it. I don't think anyone you can't yeah. grind this hard if it's not something you you really like. Like if you don't feel like you're getting something out of it, and you don't feel like this is good. And also, um, <laughs> I don't think you can grind if you if you sit back and go, I'd probably rather be doing something else, yeah. or I could be doing something else. Yeah. Like for many of us in this in this in this in what we do, I you know I. I and this is what's giving me stress at the moment is, well, what the hell am I going to be doing next? And this is why I'm filling up all my empty days with stuff because I'm like, I just don't think I can sit on the beach and just chill for six months. Like that's insane as a concept. Um, I think you just got to keep <clears throat> waking up thinking that you're you're making small steps. Mm. Like you should never be waking up thinking I'm, today is going to be a day of giant leaps. Today just yeah. needs to be a day where I make that small amount of progress that right that I that I may not have made yesterday and also be aware that if you make 3 or 4 or 5 6 7 8 100 days of progress that you're then going to have a little knockback but as long as that knockback doesn't take you further back from the whole place where you started but it might take you back 10% you just got to keep yeah. Going at it. it's like it's like a footballer again again mm. right a footballer who knows that he's getting better and keeps playing but you've got to understand that an injury Right, is a short term knockback. Yeah. Right. For six and eight weeks. And it's part of the game, mate. Yeah. So my son just broke his wrist playing and you know, I'm like, mate, mate, that's gonna happen. You're playing a crazy sport, you're gonna you're gonna get knocked you're gonna get knocked about. It's what you do next. It's how hard you're trained to get back. And 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 I think that's the same story in business, right? It's whether we where did we when we got knocked back, how hard did we try to to, to get it back together? Yeah. And it is it's it's not for everyone. Yeah. Right. It's not. And it's 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 if if it if it if it impacts you 
and your ability to live your life normally and it impacts you and your ability to to be kind and caring and decent and human and make the right decisions, then it's probably not for you. Mm. Maybe do something else. And that's also okay. You know, I don't know, eight out of 10 small businesses fail in the first couple of years, whatever the stat is, I I don't know. But but that's because eight out of 10 people have realized it's not for them, Mm. right? And that's fine, right? That's, that, that there's nothing wrong with that because they may then go on to find something else that they're better suited for or they like more or anything else. But this, the, 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 the it does, I mean, it, there is a point where you, you probably need to take a rest mm. from it, right? And I, I think, you know, a holiday or a recharge or a, or a wellness retreat or whatever it is, that, or fishing or, you know, you're to, walking in nature or taking four days to walk across a a hill or whatever it is that ro- floats your boat, right? Cameron, my business, he he, he goes fishing, right? He yeah. just gets off the grid, turns his phone off and will go fly fishing, mm. right? I will, <laughs> that's the thing. I was oh, I was just trying to think then, what do I do? And I'm like, mm, I don't know, I go to a bar or I play golf, which ends in a bar. So, um, so that's, I probably do need to, um, and, and, and yeah, I, I don't know. That's, that's, a, that's enough advice from me. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice, nice exit of that. Um, the thing I just like the clear, clear thing, which is kind of the path I've learned, is like coming back to what you shared around the all in. Like you just have to be all in, or it just fizzles. Yes, and I think that's what I've really found about this. Like the last few months for us, as we've been on this great growth trajectory and capital raising at the same time, it's like. The traction also comes at the most unexpected times for me. Like, obviously, it's like incremental inter- incremental work, incremental work. But it's often I've found like when I'm just in the flow of I stop trying to control. Like, I know I need to be like a cause in the effect happening. Mm. But once I'm just in the rhythm of the doing the thing, it's amazing what actually comes through. And I think that's, that's definitely been... Um, yeah, probably one. It's also like a profound personal lesson as well around how to move through the world. It's like, oh, if I just if I focus on I'm grinding, that doesn't work. I got to love the game. Yep. And that has just been an entirely different shift of me. That like I'm learning to new levels. I should say as well. Like I've known that, and now I'm rediscovering that at a different scale with different implications. Yeah. So two things I'd, I'd say. One is being, yeah, in sport that you'd call it being in the zone. Yeah. Right? That you just you're feeling it. Right? And and some days you're better than other days, and there's no real reason other than yeah. I don't know circadian rhythms or whatever it might be. You <laughs> yeah. just you just don't deliver your best performance, or you don't deliver your best pitch, or you, you know right. So you got to understand that, and you got to so, uh, two things. I think that men often don't do is sometimes you don't sit back and go, okay, what was it that was, what was it that meant I didn't put my best performance in mm. yesterday, right? And and often it's a fight you've had on the phone in the morning or it's just you haven't had enough sleep or you've had too much to drink the night before or anything else. And you know, say, well, I've got to try to be better, Yeah. be better next time at that because that was a bit shit. Yeah. Right? And be honest with yourself yeah. without brutalizing yourself. Just yeah. be honest with yourself that I was a bit shit today because I was, you know, or you're just just distracted about mm. other stuff. Um, be, be a bit be a bit. Um, better each day and try to figure out um, what it is that, that what are the conditions that make you perform at your best, right? You know, a sports person would be spending most of their lives trying to, and a, and a sports physician and a sports psychologist. Tweaking. Yeah. What is it that, how are we mm. going to get you onto, into that exact best 
performing, yeah. right? Because because the difference between you performing at 100% and performing at 96% is the difference between us winning and losing this match, tennis game, whatever it is, right? Golf. Yeah. I mean, I'm obsessed with golf, right? Because golf is the, the most in your head. Like, <laughs> yeah. you don't have any other, you're not playing against anyone other than yourself, yeah. right? And that just, does my fuck that just does your head in right which is like it's me it's the ball it's the course and i can't impact on what anyone else does like if i was playing football i could impact them yeah by smashing into them or even on tennis i could impact them by hitting a better serve or whatever golf it's me against me and, and that's what makes the, like the Ryder cup the competitive like team golf so awesome and crazy yeah. is that all of a sudden golfers are trying to play as a team yeah. and you just see the golfers who's just like, I've never done this before. This is fucking weird. You know, like I hate you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, you know, and, and I think it's probably why I'm also not a very good golfer because I, I have all these conversations with myself that distract me <laughs> from doing what yeah. I should be doing, which is just concentrate on the little ball and yeah. getting the little ball in the holes. Stop. Anyway, <laughs> golf is, golf is a, is, is a truly fascinating. I read a story yesterday about Willie Nelson. Right, the most unlikely golfer, yeah. right, of yeah. all time, and he has a golf ranch in Texas. Willie Nelson, right, and he, 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 but he has no golf. He has no rules. You can play like fifty holes. There's no rules. No one keeps score. And I'm like, he's like the awesome. He's like the anti-golfer golfer, but he loves golf. Yeah, right? he yeah, loves yeah. the challenge of it and the interest. Right, and but he has this crazy golf ranch in Texas, and I'm like. I want to go and play golf with Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> the next six <laughs> m- months. <laughs> but he, anyway, it's a, it's it, it's the 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 beauty of it doing anything. Like the the greatest sense of achievement that you'll have in your life is when something's been hard. Mm. Nothing that has come easily fills enriches you. Yeah, it's only things that have been hard yeah. that really enrich you. And um, you know, I and I think that. You know, all I would say to a young bloke like you going through it is that, you know, the the there are going to be many many steps on the journey where you're thinking this is maybe this is too much or am I taking on too much or oh now I'm having babies or not having babies or whatever it is or relationships or not relationships or whatever that you know there's going to be you know hurdles and challenges put in your way. There's no question about that, right? And it's just how you cope with each mm. of them and how you try to improve yourself beyond that next hurdle. Yeah. And you become better. Like I'm a better man today than I was 20 years ago. So at your age, like I was, I was much more, I mean, maybe my ruthlessness and my, not meanness, but my single mindedness then Mm. got me to where I am today, but I'm a much better manager and better leader and more thoughtful now than I probably was then. And I do often wonder was being an enormous prick to my advantage when I was setting up this business because it meant that I could be entirely like driven. Yeah. I mean, I was never a complete prick, maybe oh, a bit of a prick. Um, <laughs> but, um, it's, um, you, you, you do need to evolve. I mean, evolution is, <laughs> yeah. is a thing. Yeah. Right. And if you don't evolve as a human throughout your own life, mm. then I don't think you're going to evolve as a species throughout, generations of life for sure so you know i'm hoping that i'm better today than i was 20 years ago um and i hope that my child is better than i was at his age like we, we've yeah. got to we've got to evolve yeah otherwise we're never going to have these fucking solutions to the problems we were just talking about yeah because my me and my generation created the fucking problems 
if we don't evolve and create smarter humans like you and then your mm. children, we're never going to come up with the solutions. Yeah. So <clears throat> evolution. There you, there's the answer. Fucking <laughs> <Like> Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> On you, Charles. Um, well, I, I think just to kind of land the plane and um, then we'll, we'll finish up. Let's land the plane. Yeah. yeah. Is uh, – I do think that's what's really exciting about, you know, particularly the, the I guess, the this community of entrepreneurs I'm in and, and you know, hope to be a role model for is that um, doing well financially and doing good socially are not necessarily mutually exclusive anymore. And no. I think that's what we've really tried to do with stuff is how do you make this very commercially successful, like 100 million plus business, and how do you ensure that it supports Man Cave to continue growing into perpetuity? And I think we're now starting to see a lot of entrepreneurship where it's like, okay, we can kind of like profit and purpose can coexist here. And I think that's what I really want to keep fanning the flame on because I really think business can fast track social problems within governments or corporates. Like, so yeah, I think that's probably the the place to to land the plane but hey thank you so much for hanging out we definitely um, covered some territory <laughs> Charles Darwin evolution yeah the Matildas. That's, a good, that's a good place to end the Matildas and Darwin um, but I want to say thank you so much um, yeah just I know, you know the support you have given me uh, and but also um, yeah congratulations as well like you're at the end of a, a chapter that has been a grind and yeah and hopefully just, at the start of a new one yeah absolutely absolutely so thank you so much Stu. thanks Anna Thanks so much for listening to this episode. It means so much to me. If you got any value from this episode or if there's anything you want to share with me, please do reach out. And the other thing is I would love your support in growing this and getting it out to as many people as possible. So if you feel comfortable to leave a five-star review, I would really appreciate it. We recently had to transfer back-end infrastructure on this podcast and we lost over 150 five-star reviews. So we're on our way of clawing them back. So if it aligns with your values and if you feel comfortable, I would love your support in getting this podcast out there, whether it's sharing it, five-star review, or letting me know what really resonated. Thanks so much for listening. 